Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would nourish us this morning by your word. Pray that your promises would enliven our faith. Lord, we pray that your warnings would keep us from sin. Father, we pray that the gospel would this morning animate in our hearts more love for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for inviting me to be here this morning. Regrettably, I'm not going to be talking about the Karate Kid, but you can come talk to me about the Karate Kid afterward if you want. Turn with me to Genesis 16. Genesis 16. As you're turning there, I want to remind you of Paul's instruction that he gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. Anytime the Bible gives us a command, I assume the reason the Bible is explicitly giving us that command is because our hearts don't naturally incline toward the thing that is being stated. My heart recoils at patience. Patience implies not getting what you want. It implies endurance. As the older writers would describe it, it is long suffering. And Paul says that patience should be the manner, the characteristic of Christian ministry and of particularly the teaching ministry of pastors. Genesis 16 is a story about the disastrous consequences of impatience, particularly impatience with God. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want to consider Genesis 16, because as surprising as it may seem, Hagar's stupid plan and Abram's gross sin and this Egyptian slave girl named Hagar have a lot to teach us about trusting God's promises. They have a lot to teach us about long-suffering patience, and I think by implication, we're at a seminary, most of you are studying for ministry. This has a lot to teach us about the character of Christian ministry. So let's look at Genesis 16. We're gonna consider it in three points. Point number one, Sarai's impatience and ours. Sarai's impatience and ours. Look at verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. I just want you to consider the gravity of that opening phrase, Sarai had borne Abram no children. There are so many layers of grief packed into that one sentence. You have the personal griefs of infertility, 
Uh, we can't forget these are real people with real emotions. This is a couple that's been married for decades. They've never held one of their own children. They've never held a squishy two-year-old of their own and given them a big hug before putting them to bed. Then there's all sorts of social and cultural elements here as well that would cause grief, right? In the ancient world, barrenness affected your status, your family's dignity. Sarai's identity and Abram's legacy are all bound up in them having a child. If Sarai can't produce children for Abram, then who is she? If Abram can't produce an heir, then what is his legacy? Her line will end. His line will end. And then there's another layer, the deepest layer of grief in that opening line. If you know the biblical storyline, you know that all of these matters that I've just mentioned are, are the least of their concerns. God had promised them a son who would bring restoration and blessing. Their redemption hangs in the balance without a seed. Creation's restoration, humanity's return to an Edenic paradise hangs in the balance with the birth of this son. This is ultimately a threat to God's plan of redemption. So is God going to come through on his promise to crush the serpent's head, deliver us from sin? Humanity's hope rests on Abram having a son. So Sarai looks at this situation. She looks at her 85-year-old body. She looks at the promises of God. And what's her response? She decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. Look at the end of verse 1. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. This is Sarai's response to the situation. The Lord has kept children from me. The Lord is behind my barrenness. God clearly isn't going to fulfill his promise through me. There's no hope for this situation. It's time to engineer the results we want. Let's take matters into our own hands. Here is my servant, Hagar, the Egyptian. Let's bear children through her. Sarai is unwilling to wait on God to fulfill his purposes and his promises in his way. She does not trust God to act according to his word. This isn't the first time we've seen something like this in the life of Abraham. Remember Genesis 12? Just after Abram received promises from the Lord and he left Ur of the Chaldeans and he goes into the land of Canaan and he encounters a famine in the land. And what's his response? Well, he flees into Egypt. And there he basically forfeits his wife into Pharaoh's harem. Now here we are years later. The Lord has just made a covenant with Abram. The Lord just appeared to Abram in a dream and swore an oath on his own life that he would give Abram children. And now there is another famine. There is a barrenness in Sarai's womb. And what is Abram's response? Abram, 
go into Hagar and Egyptian. They're always looking to Egypt to provide what God said he alone would give them. So you see Sarai's posture. I know what God said. I know what he's promised. But it's time to get with the program. Let's move this thing along. The time for trusting God has ended. Let's take action to get the results that we want from this situation. And friends, it's, it's so easy to look at Sarai's actions from a posture of shock and disgust. I mean, what an extreme response. I, I would never do something like that. Friends, we are Sarai in this story. We are Sarai. How often do we prove ourselves unwilling to wait on the Lord, unwilling to trust his sovereign hand? I wanna meditate on this point for a moment and consider how we can apply this to the work of the ministry. What's at the very core of what Sarai is doing? What, what she should be doing is relying on God's promise, his word, and his spirit to create life. But instead, she's trying to bring about by an act of the flesh something that only the spirit of God can produce. She's trying to bring about by an act of the flesh something that only the spirit can produce. There's, there's even kind of an irony in her actions. I mean, you could argue she desires a good end. She wants Abram to have children. She wants to see the seed promise fulfilled. And maybe she's thinking, well, look, Abram, Genesis 15, 4. It, God said that you would have a son. He never explicitly said it would come through me. Maybe there's a loophole here. There might, at least in her mind, be something right about her ambition, but she is endeavoring to achieve God's ends in a fleshly way. Beloved, that is and will be one of the most pervasive temptations you face in ministry. Some of you may labor at a work for 10 years and see no visible fruit. Some of you will counsel married couples for a year and their marriage will look exactly the same as when you started. You may share the gospel with the same people a hundred times and at the end of each time they look at you and say, oh, it's interesting, I'll think about it. Maybe you invest in potential leaders that never seem to grow you shepherd congregations that just never seem to get healthier, or you reach out to communities for years and never see a soul step into the waters of baptism. And friends, in those moments, the great temptation of your heart will be to do something to engineer the results that you want. Maybe if I just ingratiated myself into the culture a little bit more, my message would get a better hearing. Maybe if we just temporarily stepped away from some of the sharp edges of Christian doctrine. 
Maybe if our church was cooler, maybe if we were less cool, maybe if we were younger, maybe if we were older, maybe if we were more politically and socially active or less politically and socially active, maybe if we started using this small group model, then we'd see more conversions. More people would grow, our, our church would have more unity or, or whatever other good end that you may desire. Beloved, as if any of those things can transform the heart of a sinner. You cannot fix spiritual problems with ministerial creativity. You cannot reverse engineer a work of the spirit. You cannot create spiritual fruit with works of the flesh. All we can do is speak the word of God. All we can do for people is hold out the gospel and then pray that the spirit creates life. God's kingdom is made up of Isaacs. It is made up of people born of the spirit and we can't create spiritual work in someone's heart. All we can do is what Sarah should have done. Trust that God's word and spirit alone can create life. Beloved, the only thing that we can create by our own strength is an Ishmael. It reminds me of that great Spurgeon story. It's probably apocryphal. Drunken man encounters Spurgeon on the streets of London. Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? No, why should I, Spurgeon says. The man replies, because I'm one of your converts. Spurgeon replies, well, you must be one of mine. You're certainly not one of the Lord's. <laughs> Beloved, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And we cannot, we cannot produce in anyone spiritual life. We cannot create children born of the spirit. That's not our job. All we can do is speak God's word and expose people to the gospel and then patiently pray and pray and pray that God's spirit works by his word. And I want to offer one caution. Being a Calvinist does not make you immune to the temptation of not trusting God's word and spirit in your ministry. And I say that as like a 12-point Calvinist, okay? If, if there's points of Calvinism out there we've not yet discovered, I'm, I'm already on board for them. <laughs> it's not enough to affirm that God is sovereign or just to affirm all the right doctrines. You have to believe them. You have to delight in them. Why am I saying this? Because Sarai is a Calvinist in this passage. She totally affirms God's sovereignty. See how she introduces her plan in verse two? Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She affirms God's sovereignty. What she says is true. The Lord is the one who has prevented her from bearing children. He is the one who opens and closes the womb. Sarai affirms God's sovereignty, but she doesn't trust it. She doesn't delight in it. God's sovereignty poses for her an opportunity to blame God rather than trust him. Friends, God's sovereignty for you must be more than mere theological principle. It must be the lifeblood of an unshakable confidence in God's ways, 
even when his ways uproot and overturn every ambition you might have for your life and your ministry. God's sovereignty should fuel an unswerving commitment to trust the power of God's word and spirit, even when his word and spirit appear to you ineffective. God may choose to give you or me a ministry like the one described by Charles Bridges when he wrote that the seed of the gospel may lie under the earth till we lie there and then spring up. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know if you read the Heidelberg Catechism, you should. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism describes the effect that God's sovereignty should have on our souls. Question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Listen to the first line. Answer, we can be patient when things go against us and thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Beloved, this is the great irony of Christian ministry that we labor for things that we cannot accomplish. Sarai could not make life in her womb, so she falsely thought she could create the child of promise through Hagar. But true acts of God are born of the Spirit. We labor for things we cannot produce. We scatter seeds we cannot make germinate. We water plants we cannot make grow. And conversion and sanctification and restored marriages and healthy churches and qualified leaders, all of these things are produced by acts of the Spirit. And our job is to trust God's word and expose people to the Bible and preach the gospel and then pray. Patiently trust God's promises that he will act by his word and spirit. Point number two, Abram's iniquity. Abram's iniquity and ours. Abram's iniquity and ours. Look at the end of verse two. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Does that sound familiar? You heard that anywhere before? Those are the echoes of Eden, right? This is the sad replaying of Adam's rebellion against God when he listened to the voice of his wife, Genesis 3.17. It's not the only echo of Eden in this passage. It's the same sequence. Did you notice? Sarai took Hagar and gave her to Abram and he indulged. Genesis 3, Eve took the fruit and gave to her husband and he ate. 
So God calls Abram out of Ur to launch a, launch a, a campaign to reclaim a people for himself. I, I love how Dr. Hamilton puts this. God promised Abram the land of Canaan as a new Eden from which he would reclaim all of fortress earth for his glory. And here Abram is a new Adam. He is the fount of a new humanity, but in this passage, he's a new Adam in all the wrong ways. And one of the most extraordinary things about this passage is that Abram, like Adam, indulges in this sin after experiencing so much blessing, after enjoying so many spiritual privileges. I mean, what happens in the chapter just before this? The establishment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Lord just took Abram out of his tent and said, look at the stars of the sky, so will your seed be. The Lord just declared Abram justified on the basis of his faith. The Lord just cut animals in two and walked before them as if to say to Abram, if I don't give you a son, then may I, the Lord, be ripped apart like these animals. And yet despite all these spiritual privileges and despite the clear promises, Abram rebels against God. How can Abram have such overwhelming spiritual privileges, such amazing acts of faith and fall so hard? But friends, it is the same with us, is it not? Consider your own many spiritual privileges. Is it not the case that we have even more than Abram was given? We have the new covenant. We have the fullness of God's revelation. We know Jesus Christ. We have the four gospels. We have all of these spiritual privileges. We have the indwelling of the spirit. And yet we are impatient with our children. And yet we gossip. And yet we give ourselves to discontented murmuring speech. And yet we click that salacious link. And yet we withhold forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, take heed of sin's deception. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happened to them, Old Testament saints, as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Most of you in this room are preparing for some type of ministry. Maybe it's vocational ministry. Maybe it's some other type of ministry. What immense blessings and spiritual privileges the Lord has given you. Like Abram, you have been the recipient of enormous spiritual privileges. You have had the luxury of attending this seminary. You have one of the most extraordinary faculties ever assembled teaching your classes. Many of you have had faithful disciplers in your life. Many of you have had the all important blessing of a healthy local church. Some of you have sat under a healthy expository preaching ministry for years, maybe even decades. Many of you get it theologically. That's why you came to Southern, right? Because this is the school that's serious about good theology. And friends, none of those things, none of those things in themselves is sufficient to keep you from sin. 
Beloved, entering vocational ministry does not make you more immune to sin. Oh, that it did. Engaging in the work of ministry is no safeguard against your own heart's rebellion against God. We need instead to trust the promises of the gospel every day. We need to pray without ceasing. We need to self-consciously, purposefully set our affections on things above and on Christ every day. We have to pursue holiness every day. Let anyone who thinks he stands because of his many spiritual privileges take heed lest he fall. But this isn't the end of Abram's sin. No, it actually gets much worse. Look at, look at the fallout of Abram's sin in verse four. And when he saw, excuse me, rather when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong be done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. I mean, this is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> May the wrong done to me be on you. I mean, are, are, are you kidding, Sarai? Now you're blame shifting? Do you hear the echoes of Eden in this again? It was the serpent who deceived me and I, I ate. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. And then here's Abram's response, passive, indifferent, uncaring, do whatever seems good to you. I don't care that this woman is bearing my child, just take care of this issue in a way that doesn't require my attention. In fact, Abram's language here is literally, do whatever is good in your own eyes. That's the language of the book of Judges. When there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And Hagar's not guiltless here either. She holds Sarai in contempt. That's the exact same language of Genesis 12:3, which says that God will curse those who curse or hold in contempt Abraham's family. So look at where Sarai's great plan has got them. I mean, isn't it also interesting to note how quickly they jettison their plan? This, this is supposed to be the seed that Sarai is going to bring up for Abram. And the plan is jettisoned basically as quickly as it starts. Their marriage is ruptured. They're blaming one another. You have Hagar who's been treated like a commodity. Sarai's turned against Hagar. Hagar's against Sarai. This family is a soap opera. And then the fallout doesn't end there. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, and he's a man characterized by violence and opposition and antagonism. Listen to how Ishmael's described in verse 12 of this passage. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The conflict between Sarai and Hagar is going to continue in coming generations between Ishmael and Isaac, and then between Ishmael's descendants and Isaac's descendants. Beloved, the effects of sin are disastrous. 
Sin promises pleasure, but it delivers only destruction. Brothers and sisters, do you want to have a long, faithful, productive, fruitful ministry? Then make it your daily ambition to pursue holiness above everything else. And that sounds noble and easy, and it's easy to say amen to that statement, but then the pressures of ministry and the desire to finish a to-do list and the urgency of one more counseling meeting and not wanting to disappoint that guy that you know is already mad at you can so easily crowd out nourishing your own soul. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are in formal ministry or if you're entering into ministry, the greatest need of your church, the greatest need of the people that you are serving is your personal holiness. Cultivating your soul's health, cultivating affection for Jesus, cultivating the courage it takes to trust in God's promises, cultivating fear of God and putting to death fear of man, guarding yourself from sin takes time and you will accomplish far less in ministry day by day by focusing on these things. But you will accomplish far more year by year by focusing on these things. Guard yourself, beloved, from the ravaging, far-reaching effects of sin. One night with Hagar. One click of the mouse. One white lie on the church's financial statement and the damage plays out for decades. When I was a student here, the school paper was called Towers Magazine. Maybe that's still the case, I don't know. Everyone looks confused. Well, when I was a student, we had a monthly paper, it was called Towers Magazine. Almost 12 years ago to the day, Towers ran an article I will never forget reading. An MDiv student who overlapped with me while I was an MDiv student wrote an anonymous piece confessing how he had destroyed his marriage in seminary. Not with rampant immorality, but simply by idolizing ministry. And one spiritual neglect in his life led to another and he ended his education here not with a diploma, but with a certificate of divorce. Here's what he wrote in February 2011. It is ironic that I have seen seminary be the place where many have been disqualified from ministry. It is clear in scripture that the Holy Spirit specifically appoints certain men as leaders by gifting them and putting it in their hearts to serve joyfully in the context of a local church. It's a noble desire. It can be an all-consuming desire. But with this desire comes the responsibility to humbly prioritize one's life in such a way that prevents a subtle disregard for God's written word. God has not commanded husbands to love seminary. He has commanded that we love our wives and strive to protect our marriages even from something as noble as our ministry call. 
Take it from me, my projected graduation date was December 2010. I was one semester away from earning my MDiv. And when I decided I needed to take my marriage seriously, it was too late at that point. Friends, before anything else, cultivate holiness. Cultivate love for God and love for neighbor. Pray without ceasing, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Point number three, God's success, not ours. God's success, not ours. Now this passage is heavy with warnings. It's filled with negative examples, but it is not without great gospel hope. Friends, even as we think about our own need for patience, as we think about our own need to be long-suffering in trusting the promises of God, as we think about our own need for personal holiness, we have to remember that our hope for ourselves and our hope for the success of the gospel is not rooted in how patient you are and how holy you are and how personally righteous you are. How would you expect God to respond to this situation? How do you think God might interact with these rebels, Sarai, Abram, and Hagar? Well, let's just briefly look at how he responds to each one. Chapter 16, verse seven. How does the Lord respond to Hagar? Well, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi, and it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now, who, who is this? Angel, well, notice Hagar's response to this angel in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So this angel is closely associated with the word of the Lord. And Hagar, uh, Hagar identifies the angel as the Lord himself. So this is God who has sought her out and who has come to her rescue. This is God who looks after me, Hagar says. And isn't, isn't this astonishing? God is the one who seeks her out. God is the one who cares for her at this well of water. God is the one who searches for Adam in the garden. God is the one who calls Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans when he's worshiping the moon. God is the one who 2,000 years later will meet another broken, sinful woman at another well of water because God seeks and saves the lost. What's God's response to Abram? We'll flip over to Genesis 17, verse 1. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. What does God do in response to Abram's sin? He says, Abram, you loser. I, I, I cannot believe you've done this to me. You and I, we're through. We're done. No. He says, Abram, come back to me. Obey me. Now let me tell you again all of my promises. He reaffirms to Abram every last promise with even stronger language than he uses in the past. But what about Sarai? Sarai, you started all this. You're out of the covenant. No. Genesis 17, 15. And God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. In, in the Bible, human wickedness and rebellion never gets the last laugh. Life east of Eden is basically just a billion instant replays of Adam's sin in the garden every day. And yet God responds to the sin and he responds to the darkness with promise after promise after promise after promise. I mean, can you comprehend this passage? Does the character and relentlessness of God's grace astonish you? The, the fact that Genesis 17 follows Genesis 16 should cause no end of wonder in our souls. In his book, recent book, Gentle and Lowly, like many of you, I read it last year and was just so helped meditating on the gracious disposition of our Savior. In that book, Dane Ortland meditates on the relentless persevering magnanimity of God's compassion for sinners. This is what he writes, that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. 
Beloved, what great hope for us and what great hope for gospel ministry that God's salvation of sinners advances, his grace advances by the power of his word and spirit and nothing can stop his sovereign, unrestrained, sweeping, flood-like love for sinners. And friends, our ministry failures and our sins and our acts of impatience and even our unwillingness to wait on the Lord won't stop the progress of the gospel. It won't hinder God's arm in saving sinners because nothing can thwart the advance of God's kingdom because God seeks and saves the lost. God pursues sinners. Friends, our hope for ministry is not how sage we can be and how holy we can be and how good our theology is and how biblically informed and sophisticated our philosophy ministry is. All those things are good and you should pursue them out of love for Christ. But our hope of any real fruit is rooted solely in the one great truth that in the Bible, God overcomes every obstacle, even the inadequacies and sins of those who preach the gospel to seek and save sinners. That is our one and only hope for life. And it's our only hope for ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you because you are a good and gracious God. Lord, we thank you that your mercy and your love is sweeping and unrestrained and flood-like for sinners like us. Lord, we thank you that all of these blessings that come from your hand come to us from our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.